Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Liberty, Equality, Humanity, the Haitian Revolution. Some revolutions are violent, while others are not. The French Revolution, for example, was famously bloody, as was the American Revolution. On the non-violent side, you might think of such events as the fall of the Berlin Wall, or the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Plus, the Earth performs a revolution around the sun once a year, rather peacefully, and the Beatles' Revolution No. 9, while pretty weird, does not involve any actual bloodshed. The Haitian Revolution, though, belongs in the violent category. It began with a slave insurrection in 1791, and culminated with Haiti's independence at the start of 1804. Over a decade and more of warfare, there was tremendous loss of life, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. The revolution exemplifies the old adage that violence begets violence. In the late 18th century, what is now the independent nation of Haiti was the colony of Saint-Domingue. It was a staggeringly profitable colony for the French, producing about half the supply of both sugar and coffee for the entire world, alongside cotton and indigo. But this was staggering profit that required staggering brutality. Every year, 30,000 slaves were imported from Africa, with about one-third of them dying from disease and the harsh working conditions within one year of their arrival. To maintain the submission of their supposedly subhuman chattel, the slave masters and overseers displayed a creative sadism that was itself inhuman. In his pioneering account of the Haitian Revolution, the Trinidadian historian and political theorist C.L.R. James enumerated some of the tortures and execution methods used by the French, pouring boiling sugar on the skin, stuffing the slaves with gunpowder and then igniting it, burying them up to their neck in the earth and smearing their heads with sugar so that insects would devour them. Even in the course of normal working days, as James put it, the slaves received the whip with more certainty and regularity than they received their food. After the revolution and the final grand victory of defeating Napoleon's army in 1803, the tables turned. In 1804, the revolutionary leader Jean-Jacques Dessalines undertook a campaign of extermination against whites on the island. He justified his own violence by referring to what had been done by the slave drivers. We have given these true cannibals war for war, crimes for crimes, outrages for outrages. Yes, I have saved my country. I have avenged America. The Haitian Revolution was the largest modern slave revolt, the only one that succeeded in eliminating slavery within the territory where it occurred, and the only one that resulted in the establishment of a continuously existing independent state. Obviously, it was in large part a matter of enslaved Africans being fed up with their horrific treatment, but scholars have also raised and debated the question of whether another important influence on this singular uprising was the French Enlightenment. The aforementioned C.L.R. James already suggested its importance with the title of his book on the revolution, The Black Jacobins. For James, it was no coincidence that the black population of Saint-Domingue erupted in revolt in 1791, just two years after the Declaration of the Rights of Man in France, then in the early stages of its own revolution. James pointed out that the rebel leaders, especially Toussaint Louverture, made frequent reference to the Enlightenment values of liberty and equality. On this telling, he was accepting an invitation extended by French intellectuals like Denis Diderot, who had spoken out against slavery and even predicted uprisings. 
one work in particular called Philosophical History of the Two Indies, published by the Abbé Reynal in 1779, was definitely known to Toussaint. Reynal had written, A courageous chief only is wanted, and as Toussaint explicitly said, it was he who became that chief. Writing in 1938, C.L.R. James saw the historical events of the Haitian Revolution as urgently relevant to his own time. He saw a kinship between the slaveholders of the Caribbean and the racist colonizers of his day. The rebellious slaves, meanwhile, provided a positive example. James looked forward to similar uprisings in 20th century Africa. This was Marxist history, pointing to the revolutionary potential of all oppressed masses by exploring a unique case, one in which the most oppressed masses of all quite literally realized that they had nothing to lose but their chains, and managed to seize power from their tormentors. James's own political agenda is clear from the fierce aphorisms sprinkled throughout his historical narrative. The rich are only defeated when running for their lives. And when did property ever listen to reason except when cowed by violence? In keeping with his Marxist approach, James thought that Enlightenment ideology drove not only leaders like Toussaint, but the rebels as a whole population. He saw the plantation workers as the closest thing that the late 18th century had to a proletariat, and also understood the revolution back in France in terms of bottom-up rather than top-down social forces. His hopes for the Africa of his own time were expressed in the same terms. From the people heaving in action will come the leaders, not the isolated blacks at Guy's Hospital or the Sorbonne, the dabblers in surrealism or the lawyers. And elsewhere, let the blacks but hear from Europe the slogans of revolution and the Internationale, in the same concrete manner that the slaves of San Domingo heard liberty and equality in the Marseillaise, and from the mass uprising will emerge the Toussaints, the Christophs, and the Dessalines. Following a Marxist analysis in terms of class, which took the Haitian Revolution to be an inevitable manifestation of economic forces, James sometimes de-emphasized the factor of race. If this was a war of black against white, that was because black skin was correlated with being a victim of economic oppression. Thus, James was capable of writing, of the parallel developments back in France, had the monarchists been white, the bourgeoisie brown, and the masses of France black, the French Revolution would have gone down in history as a race war. On the other hand, James did not intend to suggest that race could be ignored or treated as inconsequential, writing, to neglect the racial factor as merely incidental is an error only less grave than to make it fundamental. This was, after all, a story of complex racial and economic divisions, in which slaves, free people of color, poor whites, and rich colonists all pursued separate agendas and variously worked with or against one another at different stages, not to mention the involvement of three European powers, France, Britain, and Spain, with whom different factions had shifting allegiances. By the way, for a wonderfully detailed accounting of the revolution in podcast form, one which emphasizes this very factionalism, check out the series on Haiti in the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. Some historians have doubted whether the ideas of the French Enlightenment really helped to motivate the wider black population, but as historians of philosophy, we can perhaps leave that question to the real historians and focus on James's valuable observation that the leaders of the revolution did indeed cite Enlightenment values and work them into the fabric of the new state that they founded. A letter, supposedly written by three of the initial leaders of the revolt, addressed white slave owners in the following terms. We are your equals by natural right, and if nature pleases itself to diversify colors within the human race, it is not a crime to be born black, 
nor an advantage to be white. Have you forgotten that you have formerly vowed the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which says that men are born free, equal in their rights, and that their natural rights include liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression? There is some doubt about the authenticity of that letter, but the public pronouncements and letters of Toussaint Louverture himself are full of the same sentiments. When he first announced himself as a rebel leader, he said, I have undertaken this vengeance, and I want liberty and equality to reign in Saint-Domingue. He never tired of repeating his commitment to republican values, stating, for example, that anyone who is a subject or vassal of kings is no more than a vile slave, and a republican alone is truly a man. This helps us to make sense of the fact that, after forcing the French grudgingly to emancipate the slaves of Saint-Domingue, Toussaint fought under the banner of the republican French government against a British invasion of the island. Some have questioned Toussaint's sincerity, or at least the depth of his conviction as a proponent of freedom and equality, charging that, upon assuming unchallenged leadership over his people, he all but reinstated the slave system. He required workers to return to the fields, and forbade them to leave their plantations, to stop them heading into the towns in search of more lucrative and less back-breaking occupations. Children were to start laboring as soon as they can walk, and identification cards were introduced to make it easier to monitor the workers' movements. But for Toussaint, there was no contradiction between his idealistic promises and his rigorous demands. Pre-revolutionary Saint-Domingue was a slave state, not a republic, so there had been no legitimate relations of justice whatsoever. When plantation workers threw off their yoke, they were not defying the rule of law because the law of slavery, as enshrined in the infamous Black Code, or Code Noir, of the French colonies, was in fact no law at all. But now that the island's inhabitants were free, they needed to contribute to the prosperity and happiness of the society as a whole. Thus, Toussaint justified his draconian measures as follows. To ensure freedom, without which man cannot be happy, it is necessary for all to occupy themselves usefully in order to contribute to the public good and general tranquility. Later on, looking back on these decisions after being captured by the French, he was still prepared to defend them, it was for the general happiness of the island, for the interest of the Republic. What we see in the political thinking of Toussaint Louverture, then, is a particular blend of Republican values of liberty and equality with more authoritarian ideas of compulsory social solidarity. A similar blend was, of course, also espoused by some revolutionary thinkers back in France, notably and more infamously Robespierre. Toussaint, we might say, held a certain sort of communitarian political ideal, his constitution of 1801, which established him as governor for life, sets out a vision of social harmony in terms of a close-knit family, describing the head of each plantation as the symbolic father of those who work there. This echoed Toussaint's earlier aspiration of making the residents of Saint-Domingue a single unified family of friends and brothers. It's an idea he also applied to the issue of race, talking fondly of the notion that the black and white man might see each other as brothers from the same mother. We know from a previous episode that communitarian political structures were common in pre-colonial Africa. It does not seem far-fetched to see Toussaint as deliberately invoking this cultural tendency. His idea of making each plantation and Saint-Domingue as a whole one happy family might have purposefully appealed to transported Africans who had grown up with communitarian values. More generally, we should not assume that the ideas and ideologies that helped inspire the Haitian Revolution must have been European. 
before Toussaint assumed center stage, there had been other rebel leaders who spoke not or not only in terms of enlightenment ideals, but also in the religious language of voodoo. A first unsuccessful case was that of Makandal, who already in 1758 planned a mass poisoning attack on slaveholders, but was betrayed before he could carry through his plot. This charismatic figure was said to possess magical abilities, such as knowledge of the future, which apparently failed him at the crucial hour, and shape-shifting, as in the legend that he transformed into an insect to escape when he was captured and burnt to death. More decisive was the rebel leader Bukman Dati, who came to Haiti from Jamaica. He was among those to trigger the initial uprising in 1791. Bukman and a voodoo priestess named Cecil Fatiman led a famous ceremony in which a pig was sacrificed and its blood drunk. Bukman then reportedly gave a short speech, ending with the sort of language also found in the proclamations of Toussaint Louverture, Listen to the voice of liberty, which speaks in the hearts of us all. In assessing this event, we can benefit from what we learned about traditional religious practices in Africa. As we saw when looking at topics like God and divination, spiritual beliefs across Africa are many and varied, and that variety was transported to Saint-Domingue and other colonies, along with the unfortunate victims of the slave trade. Modern historians have tried to identify the specific cultural context of the pig sacrifice, as described in several historical documents, and proposed either a Congo or Fon background. As in other colonies, the enslaved population would have been diverse, so we might wonder whether already at this early period, there was a standardized and widely shared system of voodoo beliefs or ritual practices that could unify all those who rose up in revolt. What we do know, at least, is that in many African cultures, political power was regularly linked to religious authority. Thus, our earlier discussions give us a useful context for understanding how figures like Makanda and Bukman were able to galvanize and mobilize members of the slave population. And here's one reason to prefer explanations of the Haitian Revolution that focus on African cultural factors rather than the European Enlightenment. The proponents of that Enlightenment were for the most part racists, who were at best inadequate in their opposition to slavery. True, there were critics of slavery in France in the generation or two leading up to the time of the Revolution, like Diderot and Reynal, but even the self-styled Friends of the Blacks, a French abolitionist group, argued only for gradual emancipation and a number of apparently progressive, even to use a French term, avant-garde, Enlightenment thinkers had hands that were well stained by the blood of Africans. In a book called Dark Side of the Light, Slavery and the French Enlightenment, Louis Salamoulin has called out various heroes from the history of philosophy for making only half-hearted protests, or no protests at all, against the slave trade, and for investing their own money in that trade. He condemns such famous names as Condorcet, Montesquieu, and Rousseau, and even the aforementioned critics of slavery, Reynal and Diderot. In fact, argues Salamoulin, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution it helped spawn were only possible in the first place because of the French colonial empire. The wealth it generated gave a class of intellectuals enough autonomy and ambition that they were able to envision overthrowing their own masters. As so often, C.L.R. James got to this insight first. Already in 1938, he noted that the slave trade and slavery were the economic basis of the French Revolution. Another one of his nice aphorisms captures the way self-interest limited the French intelligentsia's willingness to act against slavery. The bourgeois put the rights of man in their pockets whenever the colonial question came up. 
Then too, there's the fact that the right to property was itself a fundamental enlightenment value. And that right was, of course, constantly emphasized by the slave owners. They met every attempt to curtail their brutality by insisting upon their sacred right to dispose of their possessions as they wished, the possessions in this case being other humans. But perhaps this is no reason to dismiss the importance of the Enlightenment for the uprising in Saint-Domingue. To the contrary, the hypocrisy of European thinkers might lead us to conclude that it was only in the Haitian Revolution that the values at stake in the French Revolution were truly embraced. As Salah Moulin memorably puts it, L'ouverture settled the question, not the Enlightenment, Dessalines, not Napoleon. And we can perhaps go even further if we accept with some scholars that the events in Haiti influenced the development of European thought, and not just the other way around. It seems clear, at least, that the revolutionaries in France were pushed towards applying their own ideas to the topic of race precisely by seeing what happened in the Caribbean. Officially opposed as they were to all tyranny and aristocracy, they found it increasingly uncomfortable to support an aristocracy of the skin. As for specific philosophers, a case along these lines has been made for the writings of G.W.F. Hegel. A study by Susan Buck Morse, published in 2000, showed that Hegel was a regular reader of a number of periodicals that informed Europeans about events in the Atlantic, so he knew exactly what had happened in Haiti, and it seems scarcely credible that this is irrelevant to his famous theory of the master-slave dialectic. Without getting into too much detail, Hegel's basic idea is that the relation between slave and master is predicated on the master's self-interested independence, while the slave is seen, even by himself, as a mere thing to be used to fulfill the master's needs. This dynamic is transcended when the slave, by performing labor and seeing his ability to affect his environment, comes to a realization of his own agency. At the same time, the master recognizes that he is in fact dependent on the slave, compromising his earlier assumptions about his own autonomy. Now, it should be said that Hegel does not explicitly refer to Haiti in this context, but when we consider that his Phenomenology of Spirit was written in 1807, just a few years after Haiti declared independence, and that he sees mutual recognition between humans as a key engine of political progress, it is indeed tempting to suppose that the famous passage on the master's slave dialectic may have been written with Haiti, at least in the back of Hegel's mind. Finally, what about the wider political and ideological impact of the Haitian Revolution? It would be nice to report that it sparked a chain of uprisings that led to the quick collapse of the Atlantic slave trade, but as you know, this is not the case. In fact, the slave population in the New World as a whole went up, not down, after the revolution. And it seems to have provoked a backlash in other slaveholding territories, including the United States. Several southern states passed draconian laws to prevent history from repeating itself, for example by forbidding freed slaves from staying in the state for more than a short time after manumission. Perhaps they were aware of the crucial role played in Haiti by free blacks who were former slaves, Toussaint Louverture being himself the most obvious example. Or consider the policies of Thomas Jefferson, whose half-hearted and ineffectual hand-wringing over slavery would have fit right in amongst the French intellectuals we just discussed. Dessalines wrote to Jefferson in 1803, asking for an opening of trade between the new nation of Haiti and the United States, a natural alliance, one might think, since the Americans had also recently freed themselves from tyrannical rule. But Jefferson followed the course of action proposed by John Adams, who noted that an independent but weak Haiti was more advantageous than a strong French colony. 
He thus stayed neutral in the clash between Dessalines and the French invasion ordered by Napoleon in a last bid to enslave this formerly lucrative colony. Yet it would be unfair to say that Haiti had no wider impact, or that the impact it did have was only to encourage slave owners to keep a tighter grip on their supposed property. Just ask Frederick Douglass. Speaking in 1893 at the Haitian Pavilion at the Chicago World's Fair, he said of the Haitian people, when they struck for freedom, they struck for the freedom of every black man in the world. Free black intellectuals in the United States were thrilled by the independence of Haiti. Some even chose it as the best destination for emigration from the United States, a land much closer than Africa where black men and women could be truly free. Haiti did not have the economic or military power to export its revolution beyond its own shores, but it had shown that freedom could be more than an idea praised in books of philosophy. At the cost of great sacrifice, it could be a reality. As Toussaint Louverture put it when addressing his soldiers in 1797, let us go forth to plant the tree of liberty, breaking the chains of those of our brothers still held captive under the shameful yoke of slavery. Let us bring them under the compass of our rights, the imprescriptible and inalienable rights of free men. Let us overcome the barriers that separate nations and unite the human species into a single brotherhood. We'd be hard-pressed to find a better final word than that, so we won't try, especially because we aren't actually done with Haiti just yet. We've just been talking about the legacy of these events beyond the island nation, but what about the legacy in the island itself? The next chapter of this story cannot be told without discussing a man who was one of Toussaint's soldiers and went on to be among the first to reflect on the achievements and universal meaning of the Haitian Revolution, Baron de Varté, the focus of the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had heart trials. Tell him 